You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 13, for March 9th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes, violence, and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorphcity.com. Hey there, Metamorphs! Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am Chris Lester, the host and creator of Metamore City. As I'm recording this, it's been about a week and a half since I got back from California. And let me tell you guys, that trip was... wow. Just wow. I so needed that. I had a lot of fun visiting my old friends, hanging out in the old haunts, doing some sightseeing... It was a very relaxing trip for the most part. One of the highlights happened on Thursday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, as it happened. Uh, A couple of my friends and I met with Thomas Hodge of the Three Songs podcast and his wife Amy. They took us to this restaurant in Palo Alto. It's called Fuki Sushi, and it was amazing. Now, I've been eating sushi for maybe the last five or six years, and I can say that this was some of the best that I have ever tasted. The place was a little slow, but it was totally worth the wait. And to be honest, that could have just been because it was Valentine's Day. There wasn't an empty table in the entire restaurant, and by the time we were done eating, there were probably oh about a dozen or more people waiting for tables. So, yeah... Kind of a crazy night for us to go eating, but uh, we got there early enough to beat the crowds. Anyway, Thomas and Amy were really nice. We had a great time talking to them, and they paid for the dinner, which I am just completely, totally grateful for. So thank you, Thomas and Amy. You guys are awesome. You are true citizens of Metamore, and I am so glad that I got the opportunity to get to know you a bit. I also had my interview with Teach California Charters while I was out there, and I am very happy to say that they have accepted me into their talent pool. Over the next couple of months, they'll be shopping me out to the principals of various charter schools in the Bay Area. Hopefully we'll find one that's a good match for me. I'll keep you guys posted on any new developments on that, but for now, things are definitely looking up. Now then, you guys have waited for this long enough. Here is Chapter 5 of Making the Cut, but first, I'd better give you the story so far. In the last episode, Daniel and Victor successfully infiltrated Matthias Skyport, along with the other members of their team. Disguised as a pair of deck workers, they will travel up to the newly arrived Skyship, and locate the package that their mysterious employer has hired them to smuggle into the city. The androgyne runner known as Ava Selindi will run interference for them, keeping security's attention focused elsewhere. Once Daniel and Victor retrieve the package from the skyship, they'll hand it off to the other runner, Callie Linder, whose inherent supernatural luck gives her the upper hand in almost any situation. Four mercenaries disguised as Skyport security guards will provide added muscle, and Daniel's psychic healing talent will serve as emergency medical support, just in case anyone tries to come after the package. As it happens, someone is after the package. 
Daniel's old friends from Westfall Academy, Brian, Fiona, Sasha, Trace, and Dell, have been sent by the Hive to steal the mysterious parcel. The Hive knows what Daniel doesn't. The package is being brought in by the Vampire Crime Syndicate, the Hive's most implacable enemies. They fear that the package may contain biological weapons intended for use against telepaths. Brian's team has been tasked with recovering it so that the Hive can determine whether or not it poses a threat. Brian's team made it past Skyport security and took over one of their control rooms. As Brian plugs into the Skyport computer systems, Sasha maintains the psychic connections between them. Fiona heads for the ventilation system, which both teams have identified as the best way to smuggle out the package. Dell and Trace head up to the cargo bay, intent on boarding the cargo tender that will take them up to the skyship, the same cargo tender that Daniel and Victor are about to board. Chapter 5 Daniel tugged distractedly at the collar of his coveralls, watching as the cargo tender glided into the docking bay and came to rest on its landing skids. It was little more than a broad, squat box with engines attached, four meters high by eighteen meters long by nine meters wide. A rounded, two-man cockpit was mounted in front and blended smoothly into the body of the vehicle. It looked like a big, gray bug crouching in the middle of the cargo bay, and Daniel wondered how big its drive turbines must be to allow it to fly. There was a loud hiss and a whir of motors, and a loading ramp extended from the back of the tender. The crew chief began barking out orders, and Daniel, Victor, and the rest of the deck monkeys hustled up the ramp and into the shuttle. Fold-down seats with restraint harnesses lined the port and starboard sides of the cargo bay, and they quickly strapped themselves in for takeoff. Mid-air collisions and turbine failures were rare, but you didn't want to be unsecured in the event that something bad happened. The shuttle's back end was open to the sky, with only a meter-high folding tailgate to keep parcels from sliding out during flight. A fully closed back end with retractable doors would have added weight and complexity to the design, and for the low speeds and short distances its job required, that simply wasn't a cost-effective trade-off. Though he knew it was reasonably safe, Daniel still found himself sitting down as close to the front of the tender as possible. Victor had a strange expression on his face as he strapped in next to Daniel. His eyes were distant, but there was a tightness in his jaws and forehead that suggested deep concentration. Daniel wanted to take his hand and open a link, but physical contact of that sort was rare among mundane males, especially in a job like this one. The last thing either of them wanted to do was arouse suspicion. Daniel waited until the loading ramp retracted and the drive turbine spun up, filling the entire shuttle with a loud hum. He leaned over and spoke directly into Victor's ear. Trouble? Victor shifted and blinked, then turned to look at him. Not yet. Keep your walls up until I say otherwise. Lock your thoughts down tight. Daniel frowned, puzzled. It wasn't that what Victor asked was difficult. Every teep in the collective learned how to shut up, telepathically speaking, to avoid broadcasting his thoughts to those around him. Daniel's mental shields weren't strong enough to block a serious, concerted probe from a powerful teep, but he could block out casual intrusions and reduce his psychic signature until it was smaller and less noticeable than a mundane's. That, in turn, would make it unlikely for other teeps to hear his thoughts, unless they were specifically searching for him. But why would that matter now? 
Victor saw the question in his eyes before he could ask it. Mages can read minds if they know the right spell, he said, keeping his voice as low as possible over the engine noise. Vamps can influence you if your walls aren't up. We don't know who else is coming after this thing, so don't chance it. Daniel nodded, then closed his eyes. Reluctantly, he raised his mental shields, walling up what little telepathic ability he had behind screens of focused thought. It wasn't something he liked doing if he could avoid it. He enjoyed the touch of another mind against his, even if he was too weak to initiate it on his own. By the time he opened his eyes, the familiar, cotton-in-the-ears sensation of the psi shield had settled into place. He could still use his psychic healing if need be, but telepathically he was as mind-blind as a Mundi. A few minutes later, the cargo tender slowed to a halt, the deceleration creating a familiar lurch in Daniel's stomach. He looked out and saw that they were right under the skyship's belly, their back end pointed toward an airlock that hung down below the ventral cargo bay. After they had hovered there for a moment, the engines whined again, and the shuttle began moving slowly backwards. Daniel knew that the cargo tender sat flush against the underside of the ship when it was in flight, its back end sealed against the airlock. The image of a remora hanging onto a shark flitted briefly through his mind. There was a soft thump as the shuttle made contact with the airlock, followed by the whine of motors and the clank of bolts as the tender locked into place. Then there was another soft hiss as the pressure equalized between the two vessels, and the rear hatch slid open to reveal a smooth incline sweeping up to the cargo bay. Daniel followed Victor out of the tender and up into the skyship, trying not to gawk at the huge open space stacked floor to ceiling with boxes and shipping crates. The thing was a bloody flying warehouse. No wonder the supermarkets could afford to ship in fresh tropical produce to Metamore City. The economy of scale in a ship like this had to be amazing. All right, you grunts, let's get to work, the crew chief bellowed. He focused his attention on three young and scared-looking employees who must have been fresh recruits. Listen up, grunts. I want the heaviest crates lined up down the middle of the tender, smaller boxes on either side, fragiles in one layer on top. He lifted a scanner gun that hung in a holster at his belt, identical to the ones that each of them had been given when they reported for duty. Scan each package as it goes on board, and for profit's sake, make sure you balance the load. If that boat starts listing on the way back down, I swear somebody's ass is going to be in a sling tonight. Now move it, move it, move it! Daniel hurried to join the others, loading crates onto rolling carts and moving them down into the cargo tender. He pulled out his scanner gun and ran it over the shipping labels as he unloaded each of the crates. It beeped and flashed a green light when the scan was confirmed. The gun would then transmit a message to the customs office at the Skyport, notifying them of who had sent the package, where it was coming from, and what it contained. The customs agents would then use that list when examining the contents of the cargo bay, ensuring that nothing would be misplaced or left uninspected. The cargo bay was large enough that the tender had to make several trips. While they were unloading after the second trip, Daniel spotted Victor talking to the crew chief in hushed tones. The chief nodded and went over to the cargo bay's entrance, where he addressed two of the security guards, Evans Merks in disguise. "'What did you say to him?' Daniel asked, as they wrestled another crate onto one of the rolling carts. I told him that one of the packages up there has an MID seal on it. He's going to pull a couple of guards to escort it down and make sure that nothing happens to it. Daniel raised an eyebrow. And is there an MID seal on it? There is now. Now, that didn't make any sense. 
Victor might have the resources to forge an MID seal, but that would be sure to draw attention to the package, and that was exactly what their employer didn't want. Word would get out about the Ministry's secret parcel, and every eye in the crew would be on... Daniel blinked, abruptly getting it. You marked some other package, didn't you? Misdirection for whoever's watching us. Victor smirked and nodded, new respect for Daniel showing in his eyes. And it puts two guns on our side aboard the tender. I've located the client's parcel. We'll bring it down with the next load. Daniel felt that slight, queasy feeling rising up in his stomach again, a mixture of worry and adrenaline. You think they'll make their move? If they don't, they're idiots. You guard the package when we come back down. I'll keep an eye out for unwanted guests. He thumped Daniel's shoulder encouragingly. Stay with me, Daniel. The hard part's nearly done. What do you think? Trace peered out from around the stack of crates and scowled. Guards taking the trip upstairs? Yeah, looks likely. He directed his thoughts back through the link to Sasha. Hey, Blondie. Tell Brian we need a diversion to get on that overgrown ferry boat. He's working on it. Sasha assured them. Show me what you're looking at. Trace opened up his mind a little further, allowing Sasha to slip in behind his eyes and share his senses. About ten meters of open space separated them from the front hatch of the cargo tender. It wouldn't be hard for them to get inside and replace the two men flying the vessel. The trick was doing it without being seen by any of the four guards or twenty-odd deck workers. More importantly, the diversion would need to be something that was merely annoying, not overly dramatic or dangerous. If things went too wrong, the unloading operation would be stopped entirely until the problem was investigated. The vamps would reschedule the smuggling operation, and next time the hive might not find out about it before it happened. Something subtle, then, Brian mused, echoing Trace's line of thought. I can do that. Give me a second here to uplink to the cargo tender's computer. Less than a minute later, a warning chime began to sound from inside the tender's cargo bay. Warning, it said in a placid female synth voice. Drive turbines are misaligned. Please recalibrate before liftoff. The message looped, playing again every few seconds. The crew chief cursed vehemently and began shouting at his employees, berating them for their failure to properly balance the cargo. His words drove them into action, and within a minute's time the deck workers were rushing about for tools, opening up the access panels along the sides of the tender, and adjusting the alignment on the huge, heavy turbines that would keep the vessel in the air. The front hatch opened, and the pilot and co-pilot climbed out of the cockpit, looking exasperated. How long, chief? the pilot asked. The chief visibly bit back his first reaction. Trace knew a guy like that didn't have the rank to snap at a flyboy even one who only flew overgrown skimmer trucks for a living. Ten, maybe fifteen minutes, he said, his voice tight with anger. The pilot sighed and gestured to his companion. Fine, we're going on break. See you in ten. The chief nodded to them curtly, then turned back to managing his crew. The pilot and co-pilot left the cargo bay and headed down the hall to the right. Trace and Dell caught up with them in the pilot's break room and quickly incapacitated the two civilian flyers, leaving them bound and gagged in the nearby locker room. Neither of them were wearing flight suits that were the right size or shape for a couple of ex-Skyball players, especially not when one of them was half-wolf. Fortunately, the Skyport's shuttle crews were as diverse as the rest of Metamore City, and Trace used his clairvoyance talent to locate two suits that would fit them perfectly. 
They made it back to the cargo bay in just over twelve minutes. The crew chief glowered at them suspiciously as they approached. Where'd those other flyboys go? We're covering for them, ain't we? Dell said. His accent was brazenly careless, mimicking the speech of the street rats of the Valley South Borough. He showed the chief a lascivious grin. Found a nice brace of hens, eh, did? Two stews just come to ground after six weeks. I'm pure gantin' for it. Says the day, I says. Trace snorted loudly. They were seasoned more in the day, I think, he said, chuckling to himself. Playing a breed was a balancing act. He couldn't sound stupid, or the chief would never buy that he was a pilot. But he also couldn't use his usual accent, with its upper-middle-class diction and Arambian undertones. He settled for a lower-middle-class, blue-collar sound, and the chief seemed to accept it without question. The older man let out a rueful chuckle, his anger temporarily diffused. Won't blame a man for taking pussy where he can find it, the chief said, smirking. Not if he's got someone to fill in for him anyway. Go on and get set, we're just finishing the recal. Trace and Dell climbed the rungs to the front hatch and took their seats in the cockpit. Dell was the better flyer of the two of them, so he took the pilot's chair while Trace slid into the co-pilot's position. The controls were based on the older, more tamper-proof system of yoke, throttle, and thrust pedals, as opposed to the fly-by-mind spelljack system used in most civilian skimmers. In addition to the normal skimmer head-up displays showing attitude, fuel, and speed, there were multifunction touchscreens that displayed information on weight distribution, proximity detectors, rear and side camera views, docking clamp status, and turbine strain. Despite the added complexity, Trace felt confident that he could control the bulky craft if he needed to, as long as he didn't have to actually dock with the skyship. The intercom crackled. We'll set back here, the chief's voice said. Copy that, Dell said. Spin it up now. He pushed the throttle forward and the sound of the drive turbines built from a low hum to a high-pitched whine. The enchanted, rune-carved discs interspersed along the length of the turbines began weaving their mana fields around the shuttle. A second later, it rose off of the deck of the cargo bay, its gravity opposed by the drive turbine's repulsor field, and Dell pushed up the lever that would retract the landing skids. Keeping an eye on the shuttle's rearview camera, Dell smoothly and expertly backed the vehicle out of the mouth of the cargo bay and into open air. Clear? Dell asked. Trace checked the proximity detectors. Clear. All sights. Dell angled the thrust paddles in opposite directions, rocking the left one back while tilting the right one forward. This caused the drive turbines to angle to the left with respect to the nose of the shuttle, and the nose began to yaw to the right in response to the uneven repulsor field. Dell held the pedals in that position until they had made a neat 180-degree turn, then angled the left thrust pedal forward into the same position as the right. The cargo tender began moving forward, and he pulled back slightly on the yoke to angle their nose upward. He pushed the throttle a little further forward, and Trace felt the slight drop in apparent gravity as they accelerated toward the ship above them. "'Balls, balls,' Dell muttered. "'I've flown troop transports that maneuvered faster than this.' "'That may be deliberate,' Fiona said into the link. "'Given the sort of cargo the skyships usually carry, it would be in their best interests to prevent the pilots from doing anything too hasty.' "'See, that's the problem with the Empire today,' Dell said." Too many safety nets. No faith in the common man. If you can't trust your own pilots, who can you trust? Says the pilot in the process of committing grand larceny, Sasha said, her wry amusement obvious. Exactly, 
Dell agreed, grinning. The Skyport officials should rest secure in the knowledge that if I'm going to swipe something, I'll work to the best of my ability to make sure it lands in one piece. Cut the chatter, Brian said, his telepathic voice sounding tense. You don't know who might be listening. Trace frowned. You picking up any other thought traffic, Sash? Nothing I can pick out. I can hear some background echoes that seem familiar, but I can't make a positive ID. Probably just a couple of Hive members somewhere in the Skyport. I could probably track them down, but I'd have to break the link to you and Dell. Negative. You shut the link down at this distance, and it'll take five minutes to get it solid again. We can't afford it. Not like it matters anyway, Dell said. Even if there are other teeps somewhere around here, it's not like they'll be working for the vamps, right? As Daniel had predicted, the package with the MID seal caused a stir among the deck monkeys as the two mercs carried it aboard the cargo tender. The workers leaned in close to try to catch a glimpse of its shipping label, but there was little in the way of human-readable information. All of the details about the cargo were contained in the scanner code, and the reader guns didn't share their secrets with the person actually scanning the package. Victor's accomplices kept the dock workers at arm's length for the sake of national security so the men had to be content with loud speculations about what the crate contained. In all of this commotion, the small parcel sitting at Daniel's feet went entirely unnoticed. He had strapped in quickly when they finished loading the tender, watching from the stern of the vessel while the mercs guarded the decoy near the front end of the cargo bay. Eventually, the crew chief came in and yelled at his men to get into their seats so they could take off. Reluctantly, they tore their eyes off of the mysterious crate and went to strap themselves in. Victor sat down next to Daniel, his expression grim. Daniel gestured toward the decoy package and nodded encouragingly. Victor smirked, but his eyes still looked distant and troubled. The airlock snapped shut behind them, the docking clamps released, and the shuttle began moving slowly back down toward the skyport. After a few seconds, Daniel noticed something odd. The wind noise wasn't as loud as it had been on their two previous descents. We're going slower this time, he murmured to Victor. The small muscles around Victor's eyes tightened. Keep an eye on the box, he said, unstrapping himself and climbing carefully to his feet. I'm going to check up front. Okay, everything looks good here, Dell said. Brian, take remote control, please. A red light lit up on the instrument panel, and the words Remote Guidance appeared on the head-up displays. Set for descent, Brian said. Just don't ask me to land it like this. Relax, Cap, this won't take long. Dell turned to Trace. Can you get a scan on what's in that crate? I want to have some idea of what it weighs before I try moving it. Trace leaned back and closed his eyes. Just a sec. He stretched out his clairvoyance toward the cargo bay, past the two guards, and into the crate sitting in front of them. He felt past the layers of packing material, watching as the shadowy, indistinct forms of the crate's contents appeared before his eyes. He dialed his focus in more tightly, and suddenly the forms sharpened. He laughed. (laughs) Fruit, he said, opening his eyes and grinning. There's nothing in there but fruit. Dell raised an eyebrow. Decoy? Decoy. Trace closed his eyes and scanned the cargo bay again looking for anything unusual. He found two things that caught his attention. First, one of the deck monkeys sat apart from the others, back near the tailgate of the cargo tender on the port side. He was tall, blonde, and pale, 
Not vampire pale, but he still had the look of a man who hadn't gotten enough sun lately. A ghoul, perhaps? He was fidgeting, and very carefully looking everywhere except at the small package that was wedged between his boots. The second thing he noticed was the tall black man coming toward the cockpit. He had a combat knife tucked up his sleeve, a small pistol in his pocket, and death in his eyes. Look, sir, Trace said, pulling out his own gun and climbing out of his seat. Trouble's coming. Brian sent a ripple of acknowledgement. You in position, Fiona? Affirmative. Ready when you are. Trace gripped the handle of the door that led from the cockpit to the narrow corridor beyond. The black crewman had been delayed by the crew chief, who looked upset that he was up and moving around. But now he was out of the cargo bay and in the corridor. As soon as the door to the cargo bay swung shut behind the man, Trace turned the handle on his own door, pushed it open, aimed, and fired. The other man was quick. Trace had to give him that much. He ducked and rolled as soon as Trace began to open the door, and the first shot went over his head. He came out of the roll and into a crouch, his gun in his hand, tracking towards Trace. He squeezed off a shot, but Trace's precog showed him where the shot was coming. By the time the crewman fired, he simply wasn't there anymore. Trace crouched low and sent a shot toward the man's legs. The man leapt out of his crouch, rising too high and far too fast for it to be natural, and fired a bullet at Trace's head. He ducked behind the door as the shot went off, letting it ricochet off the heavy steel. Too fast, he thought. Stretching out his senses, he opened up his precog, took a deep breath, and leapt into the corridor, lashing out with the butt of his pistol on raw instinct. The gun connected squarely with the crewman's jaw. He had been rushing toward the door as Trace opened it, and his enhanced combat senses timed the blow perfectly. There was a loud crack of steel on bone, and the man staggered backward, stunned. Not sparing a second to think, Trace aimed the gun and fired, hitting the man in the gut. The crewman collapsed to the floor, gasping in pain. Trace fired a second round into a kneecap, and the man let out a sound like a tortured animal. Motherfucker! The man gasped, curling up around his wounds. He coughed and spat up blood. Trace callously retrieved the man's knife and gun. Stay put and I might let you live. Dell came out of the cockpit a second later, his gun drawn and his eyes on the door to the cargo bay. They'll have heard that, he said, not slowing for a moment as he passed Trace. He was right. Before he could reach the door, it opened from the other side, and one of the guards spilled through, his gun tracking. Trace felt a momentary stab of fear. Dell had telekinesis, but not ESP. He couldn't sense the air molecules around him well enough to harden them into a bulletproof shield like some teaks could. They were in the middle of a narrow corridor with no cover. He needn't have worried. Dell might not be able to form a PK shield, but his power was considerable. He stretched out his free hand forcefully toward the attacking thug as the gun was brought to bear against him. There was a ripple of air distortion, and the guard was thrown backward by a blast of force that drove him through the doorway and into a stack of crates behind him. One of them struck him in the back of the neck, making a sickening crack. The guard fell and lay still, unconscious or dead. At the same time, Trace darted forward and fired as he came around the corner, his precog putting the bullet squarely in the middle of the second guard's forehead. The big man joined his counterpart on the deck, and Trace turned his attention to the rest of the room. The deck monkeys had all unstrapped themselves and taken cover behind the crates and boxes. The crew chief was closest to Dell and Trace, and he held up his hands, his face white and his eyes wide with terror. But, but please, I got a family! 
Listen up, Trace bellowed, silencing the man. My partners and I are here for just one thing. He nodded at the two crumpled guards. There's a stolen package on board, and these bruisers were trying to smuggle it into their boss in the city. He grinned fiercely at the chief. We're here to take it back. Cooperate, and we won't hurt any of you. Trace's danger sense tingled in warning, and he spun out of the way a split second before a fist would have connected with his head. Daniel cursed as the breed thug dodged out of the way, spinning around into a defensive posture. He couldn't understand it. He'd approached quietly, hiding behind the stacked boxes, and he'd come at the guy from his blind side while he was distracted. And still the thug had dodged the attack. It was like he had eyes in the back of his head. Murderer! He shouted, ducking in fast under the man's guard and landing a jab-jab-reverse-punch combo. The breed countered with a knee strike and a right cross, which Daniel blocked and answered with a sweeping kick that knocked the bigger man to the ground. Daniel dodged past him and hit the wolfman with a bull rush, driving him into the wall and knocking the wind out of him. The theriomorph snapped at his throat, but Daniel had spent years sparring against his friend Dell, and he knew how to deal with wolf morphs. He grabbed the man's whiskers and yanked on them hard, making the sensitive nerves at their roots scream with pain. He followed up with a hard punch to the tip of the wolfman's nose, which elicited a yipe. A wolf's nasal bones weren't as vulnerable as a human's, but a fist there would still give him five hells worth of pain. Daniel pulled the man's gun out of his hand and pressed it against the underside of his jaw. You aren't taking anything today, you son of a bitch! There was a sharp click-clack of a gun being cocked behind him. Don't get stupid, kid, the breed said. Judging from voice, Daniel estimated that he was a good two meters away, too far away to be disarmed from Daniel's current position, but still so close that there was no way he could miss, especially given the accuracy he'd shown when he shot the guard a minute ago. Don't you dare move, Daniel said, his voice raw with anger. I'll do it! I'll kill him, I swear! And then what? the breed asked, his voice deep and serious. It sounded familiar, and Daniel wondered if he might have met the guy somewhere before. Look, kid, we didn't ask for this. Your buddies were trying to kill us. Now two of them's down, and another one's in the hallway with a bullet in his gut. Put down the gun. Let us take what we came for, and we'll let you go. Your friend's in a lot of pain, but if you work with us, you should have time to save him. Otherwise, I put a bullet in your head right now. And believe me when I tell you, I can pull the trigger faster than you. Daniel gritted his teeth, blinking back hot, angry tears and trying to swallow the taste of ashes in his mouth. They had him bagged and tagged, and he knew it. Sure, he might be able to kill the wolfman before the breed shot him, but what in the nine hells would that accomplish? He couldn't stop them, but he still had a chance to save Victor. All right, he said. I'll do it. But I want you to let me take care of my friend. Sure, kid the breed said, his voice softening. Just put down the gun nice and slow, okay? Daniel nodded once, then took his finger off the trigger and pulled the gun slowly away from the wolfman, setting it on the deck behind him. He didn't look at the breed as he got to his feet. Packages over there, he said, nodding in the direction of the rear port side of the cargo bay. It's just a little thing, about twenty centimeters square, it has a shipping label, but it hasn't been scanned in. I see it. 
He moved toward the back of the cargo bay, but his slow, wary steps told Daniel that he was still covering him with the gun. Like I care anymore. He ignored the wolfman, who was now getting to his feet and retrieving his gun, and went into the corridor, where Victor lay huddled around a slowly growing bloodstain. Prophet, save us, Daniel murmured, rushing to Victor's side. Stay with me, Victor. Victor didn't respond as Daniel turned him over on his back. Daniel quickly unzipped the coveralls down to the waist and pulled them open, exposing Victor's bloody abdomen. Daniel put his hand over the gunshot wound and focused his healing power, channeling as much energy as he could into repairing the damage. Slowly, gradually, the flesh knit itself back together, pushing the bullet outward and upward as the tissues mended. The flow of blood diminished, then ceased altogether. Daniel sat back on his heels, closed his eyes, and took a few long, heavy breaths. After a minute, he opened his eyes again and turned his attention to Victor's mangled knee. He felt dizzy and winded, but he forced himself to focus his power again. This was why Victor had brought him along, and he wasn't going to let him down. He placed his hands around the knee and poured out all the energy he had left. Through sheer force of will, he commanded the broken fragments of bone and tattered cartilage to fuse back together, the torn muscles and ligaments to reattach themselves, the shredded skin to grow back whole and unblemished. After two minutes, the last of Victor's injuries were finally healed. Daniel fell over on his side and sprawled on the floor, limp and exhausted. His head was throbbing. He could feel blood trickling from his nose. He couldn't have moved if he had wanted to. Instead, he lay there, watching, as Victor slowly sat up, blinking. The older man looked down at himself and ran his hands over his bloody but intact torso. His doppel charm was still in place, and his dark skin had turned a sickly gray from the blood loss, but he seemed to be coming around quickly. He looked at Daniel with an expression of amazement and respect. Daniel smiled weakly. He was going to be lucky to stay awake for another five minutes. He had nothing left to give. You're welcome, he said, his voice barely above a whisper. A muscle in Victor's jaw twitched, and he shook himself. He looked around himself on all sides, then reached down and picked something up. He looked over at a hole in the adjacent bulkhead and put his hand over it. There was a soft grinding noise of metal on metal, followed by a pop as something came loose and smacked into his open palm. He clasped his fingers around it balling his hand into a tight fist. He turned back to Daniel and opened his fist, showing him two bloody and deformed bullets. There was a cold fire in his eyes like nothing Daniel had ever seen before, a barely restrained fury that promised bloody death to anyone who got in his way. No, wait, Daniel slurred, trying to fight off the black haze that was even now creeping in around the edges of his vision. I made a deal. Victor rose to his feet and headed for the door to the cargo bay, not sparing him another glance. I didn't, he said. Such a little thing, and so much trouble, Trace thought as he picked up the package the vamps had been trying to smuggle in. He used his clairvoyance to peer inside, but all he saw was a stack of data cards and a small metal box— the latter must have been lead-lined as a precaution against scrying because it was completely opaque to his second sight. Why go to all this hassle for data? Sasha wondered. Why not use the world net? 
Obviously, it's something so sensitive that they don't want to risk someone intercepting it, Brian said. We'll find out what it is soon enough. Dell, get that thing down to Fiona and get back to the cockpit. I might be able to land it without you, but I don't think you'd enjoy the ride. Copy that, Dell said, already at Trace's side. Trace handed him the package. After testing its weight for a moment, Dell carried it to the mouth of the cargo bay, which was still facing in the direction of the skyport. Trace joined him and looked down over the tailgate. He wasn't worried about turning his back on the bay full of cowering deck monkeys. He trusted his precog to warn him of any danger before it happened, and none of them seemed to have the desire to put themselves in harm's way. A hundred meters below them, and about another hundred away on the horizontal, Fiona was perched in a small access hatch near Bay 94. She saw them as they came into view and signaled them with a small pocket mirror. Dell focused on the package in his hands, sending it aloft with no apparent effort. Gesturing with one outstretched hand, he guided it swiftly and smoothly down to Fiona. She caught it easily, nodded to them in parting, and disappeared down the hatch. Capture confirmed, Fiona said into the link. Returning to staging area and awaiting guidance to extraction point. Be right with you, Sasha promised. Dell, Trace... I'm going to pull back my focus so I can help Fiona get out of there. I'll leave a thread open to you, though, so just give it a tug if you need me. Trace sent her the telepathic equivalent of a confident grin. No problem, Sash. We'll be fine up here. See you back at the rendezvous point. The sense of Sasha's presence faded from the telepathic bond, leaving only a slender line of subconscious thought connecting Dell and Trace to the others. Trace missed her touch as soon as it was absent. Damn, it had been too long since he'd shared headspace with her. But he didn't begrudge her leaving. Fiona would need Brian's detailed knowledge of the building's schematics to navigate safely through the ventilation ducts, and channeling that information between them would require almost all of Sasha's attention. None of the rest of them were strong enough teeps to maintain a full link at this range, so something had to give. All right, Dell said, turning away from the tailgate and heading back toward the front of the ship. Let's finish this. Trace cast his gaze around the cargo bay, seeing the frightened men peering out at him from behind boxes and crates. Thank you for your cooperation, gentlemen, he said, smiling at them. He didn't brandish any of the guns he was carrying. Better not to do anything overtly threatening now that the job was done. We'll be parking this bug momentarily, so you can all relax. Sit back, enjoy the flight, don't try anything stupid, and you'll all walk away with a story to tell your grandkids about. Dell reached the door first and pushed it open, then paused at the threshold. He frowned, a wave of uncertainty coming off of him. Trace was beside him a moment later and saw why. The Arambian crewman that he'd shot earlier was missing. In his place was the blonde-haired Kitchlander, now lying on his side and looking like someone had drugged him. His eyelids were fluttering, and the fingers of one hand twitched. His lips moved as if he were trying to form words, but no sound came out. What in the hell's happened to him? Dell asked. Suddenly, Trace's danger sense screamed, his subconscious mind spotting something in his extrasensory awareness that it labeled as a threat. Adrenaline surged through his body, and in a flash of terrible insight, he saw the choice before him. He hesitated for only an instant. When it came down to it, there was only one choice he could make. Dell! Get down! Trace threw himself on top of Dell, trying to tackle him. He had just come between Dell and the cargo bay and was starting to bear him to the deck when the bullet struck him in the back, just below his left shoulder blade. 
pain flooded his senses as the ball of lead tore through his lung and rattled to a stop against the inside of his ribcage. The lung collapsed almost instantaneously, and Trace gasped for air as he hit the floor. He already felt like he was drowning. How had this happened? He knew that he and Dell had collected all the guns. There had been no gunshot, only... He turned over on his side, looking up as the Arambian crewman stepped into view. He was covered in blood, but otherwise looked to be fully healed. He was holding something in his hand, a bloody, misshapen bullet. The man gestured with his other hand, and the guns that Trace had collected flew through the air and landed in the cargo bay behind him. By this time, Dell had recovered from his surprise and pulled out his own gun. He rolled over on his back and squeezed off three shots at the crewman. The bullets were aimed well, a tight cluster aimed straight at the man's chest. All three hit an invisible wall a few centimeters before impact, deflected wide, and buried themselves in the bulkheads. Holy shit, Trace thought. PK shit, but that means... The Arambian bared his teeth at Dell and gestured, pulling the gun from the wolfman's slackened grip. Dell saw it leave his fingers and summoned his own telekinesis, stopping the gun in midair. Trace could do nothing but watch. He was losing strength fast, and he felt tired, so damn tired. The bullet must have hit a major blood vessel. He was getting dizzy, and it was getting harder to breathe. He coughed and tasted iron in the back of his throat. Oh, God. I'm drowning in my own blood. He reached out and tugged at the thought thread to Sasha, but he was already so weak that he couldn't send her much more than the excruciating pain and soul-sick fear that had overtaken him. Sasha, can you hear this? He thought desperately. It's a rogue teak. Somehow he healed himself. Bastard's throwing our bullets back at us. The gun trembled in midair, suspended between Dell and the rogue. Dell clawed at it desperately with his outstretched hand, obviously using all the power he could summon. He gasped, and the gun crept a couple of decimeters closer to the rogue before Dell stopped it once more. The rogue was sweating now. His brow furrowed in intense concentration, but his breathing remained steady and his hold on the gun was implacable. God damn it, Trace, you have to do something, he told himself. Hit him, get in his way, bite his ankles for God's sake, but do something. Trace struggled to his knees. He crawled toward the rogue teak, one decimeter at a time. His body was in agony, his remaining lungs slowly filling with blood but he pulled himself forward toward the enemy's side, determined to save Dell if he could. He nearly made it. As he came almost within reach of the rogue's legs, his body was racked by a spasm of fresh pain. He doubled up in a fit of coughing, spitting up blood on the deck beneath him. He felt Dell's shock as he realized how badly Trace was hurt, suddenly seeing the shot that Trace had willingly taken for him. Trace! In that instant, Dell's concentration faltered. The pistol flew into the rogue's hand in an eye blink, and with no hesitation, the man took aim and emptied it into Dell. Trace didn't see it happen with his eyes, but his clairvoyance was all too clear. The bullet struck Dell in the chest, the throat, the face, the abdomen, the 10-millimeter high-velocity rounds tearing him apart like a dragon's teeth through cattle. Dell couldn't summon a PK shield, as this man had. He had no way to defend himself against something as small and fast-moving as a bullet. He died before he even had time to scream. The empty gun clattered to the deck. 
A boot struck out at Trace's jaw, knocking him over onto his back. He coughed and retched, gagging on the blood that filled his throat. He looked up to see the rogue standing over him, still holding that damned bullet between his fingers. I believe this was yours, the man said, holding it out. His eyes were wild with rage and bloodlust. Perhaps I should give it back. You... Trace gasped for air, then forced the words out as best he could. Fucking moron. You're killing your own people. He shook his head weakly. They're gonna tear you apart. The man grinned savagely at him. Not if they don't find out, he said. Trace's precog showed him the bullet being driven through his eye and into his brain an instant before it happened. He was somewhat relieved that he didn't have time to feel it. Daniel could do nothing but lay there, powerless and impotent, as Victor telekinetically propelled the bullet into the man's skull. The breed twitched once and went limp. Like the wolfman, whose mangled body was less than a meter away from Daniel, he was far beyond any hope of saving. He murdered them, Daniel thought, his exhausted brain still having trouble wrapping itself around the concept. They were size, and he murdered them. Daniel hadn't been sure who the men were, or why they had wanted the package, but the battle between Victor and the Wolfman over control of the gun had made it obvious. Mages could move things around with magic, but they needed reagents and words of power to make it happen. What he had witnessed was pure telekinesis, and given the way the breed had taken the bullet for his friend, Daniel figured he must have been an esper. Victor had been hiding among the crates behind them, and waited until their backs were turned to him before he struck. No Mundy could have seen that coming and reacted in time. And now they were dead. Two sighs, identities unknown, murdered by Victor. If it had just been one, Daniel might have told himself it was a rogue sigh, just a bit of hired muscle that their employer's enemies had brought in to steal the package. With two of them working together, though, that told Daniel that the Psy Collective had taken an interest in this parcel and wanted it badly. Cuts, no wonder Victor didn't trust anyone else in the Collective to help him. I was the only one stupid enough to go along with him. Iluvatar, have mercy, what have I gotten myself into? Victor pulled out his communicator and put it to his ear. Ferret, you there? Callie's voice came back over the speaker. I copy, Valiant. You're behind schedule. Any trouble? Two hostiles. They got Tusk and Quarrel and handed off the package before I could put them down. Callie swore colorfully. Who's got the rock now? Best guess is Agent Alpha Niner, Victor said, his voice grim. She'll probably use the same ventilation ducts you're in to escape. Understood. Moving to intercept. I'll join you as soon as I can get us on the ground. Valiant out. Victor put the communicator away and headed toward the cockpit. Vic, Daniel mumbled. Victor paused and looked over his shoulder. Go ahead and rest, Daniel. You did your job. You saved my ass. Don't worry. Callie and I will get the package back. Get some sleep and Eva will pull you out before things get too ugly. He entered the cockpit and shut the door behind him. Before it gets too ugly, Daniel thought bitterly. You killed two fellow spookies, you fucking psychopath. It doesn't get any uglier than that. In the distance, Daniel could hear the sound of police sirens slowly approaching. 
Soon there would be MCPD gunboats swarming the docking bay, and detectives asking all kinds of uncomfortable questions. Victor, no doubt, would be somewhere far away by then. I helped Victor kill two of my own people. If anyone in the collective finds out I was involved, I'm a dead man. Dear gods, what have I done? We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages. Two years ago, a voice whispered from the edge a story about the Weaver's Web. Now, that voice speaks again. Koru Studios, in association with Dragon Moon Press, presents... Chasing the Bard Written and read by Philippa Ballantyne Coming soon www.chasingthebard.com They tap into your bloodstream like tiny little vampires. They hack into your nervous system like you were a walking computer network built just for them. They flood your body with chemicals that cause fear, paranoia, and psychotic rage. It's a disease that thinks. It's a disease that talks. And if you're lucky, you die before it becomes a disease that walks. On April Fool's Day, experience the horror thriller novel Infected, the major hardcover release from number one best-selling author Scott Sigler, creator of the free podcast novels Earthcore, Ancestor, and Nocturnal. Available April 1st online and in bookstores everywhere. Free audio chapters of Infected are available at scottsigler.com and infectednovel.com. The disease kills you slowly if the cure doesn't kill you first. This is Chris Miller from PatioBooks.com and The Secret Layer Podcast at www.thesecretlayer.com. And you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Chris. And with that, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave things off for this week, Metamorphs. I want to give a special thanks to Nobelis and Dante Taylor for contributing the voices of Dell and Trace. Even though their part in the story didn't last as long as some of the other characters, I consider them every bit as important, and I appreciate the time and effort that they both put into the show. I also want to give a big thanks to Indiana Jim for his role as the crew chief in this chapter. He hit that role spot on. Thanks, Jim. Now, during the break, you heard a promo for Philippa Ballantyne's new podcast novel, Chasing the Bard. Now, for those of you who haven't heard, I'm actually going to be appearing in that novel, playing the role of the villain, which I'm very excited about, especially since P.G. Holyfield of Murder at Avedon Hill seems to have painted me as his official podcasting nemesis. The first episode goes live at the end of March, but you can sign up now at www.chasingthebard.com. I hope you'll all join me in supporting Pip so we can give her a nice big listener count right from the start. Now it's time for feedback, and oh my stars and garters do I have feedback. You guys have amazed me. The sheer number of messages that I've gotten about Metamore since I got back from my trip is 
absolutely mind-boggling. I've gotten messages on Twitter, on MySpace, in email, in voicemail, in comments on the website. Everywhere I've got a presence on the web, people are finding me and telling me how much they love the show. And on top of that, the forums have really been starting to take off over at thecursed.org. I started an Ask the Author thread over there, and I've gotten a bunch of really cool, really interesting questions. If you guys haven't checked out the forums yet, you definitely should. That's thecursed.org. Here's a voice message that I got through email. I think it's the coolest message I've gotten to date. Hi, Chris Lester. My name is Ben Hathaway, and for the past six years, I have been living in Tanzania, in East Africa, where my wife and I run a home for orphaned and abandoned babies. If you can spare a moment, please check out foreverangels.org. Living in a developing country is often difficult, and particularly with the work we do, it can be very frustrating. It's easy to focus on all the negative stuff going on around you, and then you start missing the little mod cons you're left behind, like television and chocolate. Mmm, chocolate. Anyway, we do have internet access now, albeit very slow, and I have recently discovered podcasts and have become an avid listener of Metamore City. I have to say, guys, it's bloody marvellous. And I mean that literally. It is a marvel. You not only write stories of such high quality, but you also create a professional audio production. And then you give it away. I'm very impressed and thankful to you and your team for the obvious efforts you're putting in. It's a thing of beauty, guys, and it does make life without chocolate a little easier. So I'm currently making up CDs of my favourite podcasts and dishing them out to all my friends here, the ones that don't have internet access. I hope that's okay. There is one thing I wanted to say regarding the discussion started by Nobilis about alternative family structures. You see, my wife and I have three adopted children, and we run into this kind of discussion a lot. I think there is something hidden away inside most people's minds that does want to have biologically similar offspring. But I don't believe that it's innate. I, for one, am lacking that something. We chose to adopt our children rather than make new ones. And I can tell you, I couldn't possibly love any other child, even one that looked like me, more than the three that I have now. And this is emphasised by the fact that I'm a white Caucasian man, and my kids are black Africans. It just couldn't be less important. The bond that is formed between parents and an adopted child is just as strong, and in many cases stronger, than with the biological families. I can tell you this as someone that works with abandoned children. And when you consider all the tests, interviews, and character assessment that we had to go through in order to adopt, as compared to the increasingly fragmented families that's becoming the norm in the Western world, I have to say that this idea that biology is important in the formation of strong family bonds, it's just rubbish, really. It's cultural prejudice, and one which you'd think a telepathic community would be aware of. In fact, it's interesting. The Psy Collective would be in an ideal position to ensure that each child is brought up in a nourishing family environment, one which is tailored to the needs of the particular individuals. They can do this because they can see into people's heads, not because they can compare people's genes. My point is this. Successful families have more to do with each member's capacity for love than it does with biology. And if you think a telepath would know that better than anyone, Having said all that, I can completely see your point, Chris, as to why the Psy Collective is the way that it is. The whole story is driven by the tensions within this psychic subculture, 
and I can appreciate how this culture would have evolved in response to the threats of the time, and that it would not be completely able to rise above the more primitive preconceptions of the wider world. I just think that the Psy Collective could do a lot better, particularly with its family planning, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how its culture evolves over the rest of the story. So thanks again, Chris, for doing such a great job. Cheers. Wow. Thanks so much for sending in that message, Ben. As far as I'm concerned, what you and your wife are doing is the real marvel, and I salute you both for your work with Forever Angels. I encourage all of you listeners to go check out foreverangels.org. It was down when I checked it today, but uh, it should be a backup by the time you hear this. Read about the good work that they're doing to care for these orphaned children, and think about doing something to support them if you can. Now, Ben, as far as your comments on the Psy Collective, well, you're right. There are a lot of things that the Hive could be doing better, and there are definitely factors other than biology that contribute to the success of a family. But I would disagree with your assessment that the drive to have biologically similar offspring is just a cultural prejudice and not an innate tendency. From an evolutionary standpoint, there's no other drive as important as the drive to propagate copies of your own genome. Why? Because the genes that succeed in making the most copies of themselves are the ones that form the next generation. You mentioned how you and your wife chose to adopt rather than to have children of your own. That's a wonderful choice, and I admire it and respect it. But in a coldly Darwinian view of the world, that decision means that you're not going to be passing on your genes to the next generation. Whatever unique combination of genetic factors led to that lack of desire to have your own offspring, it isn't going to be showing up again in your kids, because you're not having any. Genes that lead to that sort of self-sacrifice have a tendency to remove themselves from the gene pool in fairly short order, or at best, they remain rare and recessive, popping up to reassert themselves only occasionally. Now, to be sure, who we are and what we are isn't all due to genetics. Environment plays a big role, too. And I have no doubt that you'll be doing whatever you can to instill in your kids the same kinds of values that you and your wife have. But altruism always has to fight an uphill battle, because most of us, no matter how noble our intentions, are ultimately driven by genetic selfishness. We have an evolutionary imperative, a prime directive, if you will, that tells us to make sure that our own children survive, no matter what. That's a big part of the problem that the Hive is facing right now in the story. It wants to be able to act like a super-organism, making decisions that benefit the Hive as a whole instead of just individuals within it. But humans have been evolving as individuals for individual selfishness for a really long time far longer than the Collective has been around. Even if the Hive is seeking out its most altruistic members and making sure that they have lots of kids, it's going to take a lot more than a few generations for those genes to have an impact on the population. And anyway, what the Hive wants isn't really altruism. A trait that'll help them to survive is a kind of group selfishness, a psychology that puts the interests of the Hive as a whole ahead of the interests of the individual, or anyone outside the hive. And when you think about it, that's an idea that has some scary implications of its own. Okay, that is enough biology shop talk for one day. Let's move on, shall we? Hey Chris, this is CA, Sizemore out in Phoenix, Arizona, just calling with a little bit of feedback. Um, I'm catching up because I was listening to Space Casey first, and with 
the end of Space Casey. I have them in my feed, so I started listening from the beginning. Thanks for the recommendation from of MA in PA. I really enjoyed your interview with her, and I have to say, I just finished listening to Troubled Minds, and it got me a little verklempt. That was beautiful writing. That was inspiring writing, because there's a possibility that I could actually write that well someday. And then it was kind of like, oh crap, he's that damn good. Oh well, I'm gonna try anyway. So keep it up. I love Metamore City. I'm really enjoying it. And you have a good one. Don't have too much fun now. And I will talk to you later after I've listened to a few more episodes. I've already gotten up to trouble mine. So I really like it. I've been I've been I've been burning three and listening to three and four episodes a day. So you have a good one. Later. Bye. Hey, thanks, CA. I love doing that interview with MA and PA, and I'm glad to see that it's turning people on to Metamore City. Thank you very much for your kind words about troubled minds. And as one wannabe fiction writer to another, I've just gotta say, yes, keep going for it. Keep writing, because that is the way you get better. I wrote Troubled Minds in October 2004, and if you were to look back at the stuff I was writing just five or six years before that, it's nowhere near that level. So keep at it, and find a way to submit your stories to other people for feedback, because you will get better if you don't give up. Hey there, this is the Samurai Gunslinger from Philadelphia, and I am amazed at this podcast. Uh, the voice acting, the writing, uh, the style, wow. Uh, it reminds me of uh, the best of Laurel K. Hamilton before she turned into the vampire porn mistress uh, and uh, kind of takes shadow run to where it should have gone. Congratulations, uh, you've got a lifetime fan and I can't wait to see where it goes. Keep it up. Thanks, Samurai Gunslinger. What should I call you for short? Samurai? Sammy Gun? Sam? Let's go with Sam. Anyhow, thanks for the kind words, Sam, and thank you especially for the cool review that you posted on your blog. If you listeners are looking for a site for geek news, views, and reviews, check out www.samuraigunslinger.com. That'll do it for voicemail. If you'd like to hear your voice in the show, you can send in an audio clip like Ben did, or you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. You can also email me at feedback at metamorcity.com, or post a comment on the website, or join the forums at thecursed.org. That's all for this episode. Our story continues in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.